Good morning, everyone. It's Danny Haifong here for another episode of Cold War Brew. Um, it's been a few weeks. I was taking a short break, and now I am back to continue this podcast and continue to give whatever information I can and analysis I can on this pivotal question of the new Cold War and Cold Wars in general. This podcast, if you are new to it, really dives deeper into the politics of Cold Wars, into all of the various components of them and the special emphasis goes to, of course, the new Cold War being led by the United States on China and in large part Russia. But of course, uh, there is nothing that exists on this planet that is disconnected from this question. And so that is the approach I take here. And I am glad uh, you all could join me uh, this Sunday to engage in this conversation. So I'm back after a week off, and today I wanted to address the question of human rights, this issue of human rights uh, that has come up so frequently over the course of the last several years. And I'm going to discuss how this term has basically been rendered meaningless in large part because of this new Cold War that we are experiencing right now. So, human rights. This is something I'll probably talk about for about 20 minutes, and then I will open it up to discussion. So please do, if you have any questions that you want to discuss, there will be probably about 20-25 minute uh, period where we can discuss anything that may be on your mind related to this or uh, anything else that you may want to talk about with me. So the reason why I want to talk about human rights in particular is because at this moment, Shanghai, and I'm going to be doing a lot of coverage about Shanghai and other arenas as well, uh, Shanghai is experiencing a pretty large outbreak of COVID-19's Omicron variant. China has implemented its dynamic zero COVID strategy, as it calls it, and life in Shanghai has changed immensely over the past several weeks, with likely several more weeks to go before the situation changes. And of course, as has been the case for the last two years, the U.S. and Western corporate media have used the occasion to spread this dystopic, quote-unquote, authoritarian narrative about China and insinuating that China is this nightmare for human rights. And so this has been a pattern that the U.S. has taken. This has been a pattern of U.S. foreign policy for quite some time, right? Even before this new Cold War began in this period between the so-called end of the first Cold War with the fall of the Soviet Union into, let's say, the second half of the Obama administration. Of course, human rights was exploited and wielded by the U.S. foreign policy establishment to wage these imperialist and and racist interventions and wars in uh, uh, all parts of the globe, from Latin America to Africa with the destruction of Libya uh, to Eastern Europe with the coup in Ukraine, right? It's always about human rights. Uh, The United States has made human rights, and the State Department released its annual countries report on human rights uh, to essentially target those that the United States is seeking regime change. Uh, That This includes countries like Syria, like Iran, like North Korea, the DPRK, Right, of course, Russia and China, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Latin America. Uh, this is truly a global project, and the U.S. and its NATO counterparts have a doctrine of right to protect R2P, which it employed in Yugoslavia, in Libya, tried to employ it in Syria, 
in order to establish a no-fly zone and essentially bomb the country into oblivion and overthrow the governments there. And this, of course, is very relevant to this so-called new Cold War because when it comes to Russia and China, you hear over and over and over again in the corporate media, in the U.S. and in the West, that Russia and China are the kind of focal points of this quote-unquote totalitarian and authoritarian shift in world politics, this uh, political situation run by strong men, and uh, that Russia and China internally are just agents of suppression, agents of repression, and the people in these countries suffer more so than uh, perhaps anywhere else in the world. Of course, human rights in this situation uh, has a lot of different definitions. To the United States and its Western counterparts, human rights is all about individual freedoms, political freedoms, uh, freedoms that they don't necessarily provide to the people living in their countries, right? Because we know how rigged the U.S. political system is. We know about the voter suppression. We know that uh, in the United States, it is big capital. It is the rich that dictate politics. But nonetheless, individual freedoms, freedoms, I guess you could say, run outside of the realm of economic human rights, the right to housing, healthcare, and education. These are prioritized because they can more easily be propagandized and exploited to divert people's attention from uh, the the real situation, which is that uh, the United States and the West are are governed by a dictatorship of capital, and so uh, Russia and China are viewed as these behemoth examples, these huge examples of what it means to have a whole country organized against individual freedoms and liberties, and of course this becomes incredibly racist when these countries are essentially portrayed as automaton governments that have just this full-scale capacity to brainwash their people, to destroy their capacity to even think. I mean, the Orientalism targeted toward China uh, or leveled upon China, where it's like the Chinese people have absolutely no capacity or ability to determine anything that goes on in their country, that they are just puppets of the Communist Party of China, uh, couldn't be any better of an example than this. So the United States and the West wield this concept of human rights as a weapon in this new Cold War. They wield it in a way where they are portrayed as the arbiters of what it means to be a quote-unquote democracy, to be a champion of quote-unquote freedom. And it is those countries with Russia and China in the lead in this new Cold War that challenge the hegemony of the United States, which are viewed as the biggest human rights violators. And so the term has been rendered meaningless because the United States' human rights record objectively is absolutely horrendous, the West included in this. I mean, we're talking about a social system that has dominated the West, a colonial model, an imperialist model, which has the blood and the lives of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people on its hands this uh, destructive enslavement that occurred that built the foundations of the capitalist economies across the U.S. and the Western European world. And then this consolidation of capital, which has spurred this endless war regime, which remains a terror upon the vast majority of people. It is the principal source why we have a climate catastrophe, why we have this growing inequality in the world, and why, uh, for example, the United States has uh, over 900 military bases around the world and continues to uh, occupy uh, several countries militarily, 
spread terror all across the world and of course financially impose crippling debt arrangements upon most of the impoverished majority all across the world uh, to uh, to maintain this hegemony i mean this is this is the situation this is the overall landscape which has rendered the uh, human rights concept meaningless at this point. Uh, But, I mean, there is another concept of human rights, and it is reflected in, regardless of the contradictions, right? It is reflected in China, it is reflected in lesser degree maybe in Russia, and it is reflected in much of the non-aligned world, right? And the concept of human rights in respect to development is gaining a lot of traction, which is in contradiction to how the U.S. wields human rights as a weapon of domination. Many countries with China in the lead are saying, no, the principal factor in what secures human rights for people is an increased standard of living, an increased capacity to ensure that the livelihoods of the vast majority are met and are improving over time. And uh, this is a concept that has been completely and utterly attacked by the United States and the West. This is how human rights in one respect has shaped the Cold War landscape. You have, for example, right now in Shanghai, uh, the government instituting its zero COVID policy in order to as the government has said over and over again, protect the vulnerable, the the elderly, the disabled, people who uh, are at risk still, even with Omicron being supposedly uh, less lethal in the aggregate, at least in preliminary data. Uh, China is saying that from research based upon the experience of Europe and the U.S. and across the world, they're actually vulnerable people who may or may not be vaccinated. Uh, they still are at risk of death. And so China is maintaining a policy that it has employed since the beginning of this COVID-19 pandemic in quickly and rapidly in, uh, containing the virus as best as possible so that deaths can be kept at a minimum. And so in Shanghai, right, which is a metropolis really of China, it is probably the most, I guess you could say, um, globalized city in China where you have a lot of foreign direct investment at a higher ratio than maybe other places. You have a lot of hardship now because – as some of you might have experienced if you were in the United States. Uh, Lockdowns are not fun. They come with a lot of stress. They affect the mental health of people. They are, uh, especially in the United States, there was a lot of chaos involved, a lot of mismanagement, a lot of poor planning. Uh, But when you're rapidly responding to something like this, as the case is in China, uh, there are bound to be mistakes. Now, it's very important, I think, to realize that the errors that are happening in China right now around the Shanghai lockdown pale in comparison to the quote-unquote uh, errors that have been committed over the course of the pandemic in the United States. Because one is based upon contradictions that are manageable, logistical issues. This is the case of Shanghai. Right, the inability maybe to get food deliveries in a timely manner, uh, loopholes. These are things that even the Chinese government has been very uh, transparent about in their conversations about what's been going on. But in the United States, what you had was just a complete and utter uh, transfer of wealth to the rich. You had uh, the utter destruction of people's economic livelihoods. I mean, you essentially, you essentially had a full-scale assault on working people even as people were trying to survive uh, a pandemic and still are. And so there's a key difference there, and the difference resides in this concept of human rights because uh, despite the hardship, the stressors, what's going on in Shanghai, 
the overall objective is generally met. And so the objective here in the Shanghai lockdown is to prevent death. And that's what has happened up until this point, despite, I think, 350,000 new cases since the end of March. You have zero deaths in Shanghai to COVID-19. And even with the so-called lesser lethal or the less lethal variant of COVID-19 Omicron, in the United States, you still have hundreds of deaths per day. And just a month ago, you had over a thousand deaths per day, up to 2,000 deaths per day. So China has present, prevented that kind of scenario. And it's important to understand that there are real reasons for this. This isn't just, as is often portrayed, China's addiction to quote-unquote authoritarianism. No, China's healthcare system uh, just like a lot of healthcare systems around the world, remains uh, uh, pretty underdeveloped and in need of reform, continuous reform in need of continuous change. This is something that China is not uh, does not keep a secret. This is not something that is a secret to anybody who lives in China. It shouldn't be a secret to anyone outside of China. That healthcare continue, needs continuous improvement, especially for populations so big. And so any kind of major outbreak of Omicron or any variants of this pandemic would cause calamity and catastrophe in China's healthcare system. And so that's why zero COVID in, in one respect is very, very, very important. It's why this policy of containment is very important because there just aren't the hospital beds. There aren't uh, the hospitals. There aren't the number of doctors that are needed to treat people who might get sick in mass, I mean, we've seen this in the United States to a really horrific degree. That even with all of this talk about the pandemic being over and let's just go everything back to normal, you still have healthcare systems completely over capacity and stressed, and it's been an absolute nightmare for healthcare workers. And so, in China, zero COVID is meant to prevent that. And so. That's just one reason for the zero COVID strategy. The other reason is vulnerable people, their lives matter too. Also, zero COVID, this uh, policy, which isn't just lockdowns, it's not just quarantine, it's also mass testing, it's also making sure people have what they need. I mean, there's a whole lot of components to it. It's mobilizing volunteers and doctors, et cetera, to address the the outbreaks where they occur as rapidly as possible so it prevents mass spread. Uh, the other reason why this is so important uh, to China is because economically it makes the most sense. China has had the most time under quote-unquote normal conditions economically than perhaps any other country in the world. Uh, China has been, was the only country to post positive growth in 2020 despite the devastation of the pandemic. China then in 2021 posted about 8% growth and projections look about uh, the same no matter what happens with the supply chains and the disruptions of U.S. sanctions on Russia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It looks like China will still be maintaining a normal pace of economic growth, which means it can take care of some of the objectives that it has as it moves toward its goal to become a modern socialist country by 2050. So this is a different conception of human rights. It's economic rights. It's about livelihoods. It's about making sure that people's lives improve. It's about a global vision of development where countries with histories of colonialism, histories of just impoverishment and underdevelopment have the opportunity to integrate, to connect, and to raise their standard of living so that key problems like poverty, like climate change, can really be addressed. Because you cannot address climate change under a monocultural colonial system, like the neocolonial system that exists in many uh, uh, countries formerly known as residing in the third world, global south countries as some people call them. Uh, you can't have climate change addressed. You can't have poverty addressed without technology uh, and more, and more advanced productive forces. Uh, you just can't have it because you, you have to meet the needs of the people first before these problems can be addressed. So human rights, right? There are many different definitions of it. 
in the U.S. and the West have tried and attempted to render completely meaningless and I think have succeeded within their context because uh, most people view China and Russia and all of the countries aligned with them as just these human rights catastrophes because supposedly they don't adhere to the standards of what the West thinks is human rights, which is, you know, elections and individual freedom and the right to go shopping despite a massive outbreak of a, a potentially deadly uh, disease, right? So uh, this concept of human rights, this conversation about human rights will be ongoing. Uh, there will continue to be instances, and in, in the United States is doing it, the media is doing it with regard to Shanghai, right? Painting China as this dystopia. Uh, they're doing it. Uh, in regards to Russia right now, right, in its intervention in Ukraine. Uh, They're painting Russia as this just uh, Putin-controlled government that is just massacring civilians in a wanton manner and at the same time suppressing the resistance of Russian people uh, over and over and over again. And all of this is to obfuscate. All of this is to obfuscate the role that the United States plays in worsening human rights all across the world. It is to say that, uh, for example, the United States pours so much money into these non-governmental organizations, NGOs, Uh, institutions like the National Endowment for Democracy to exploit this concept of human rights for regime change purposes, which always inevitably worsen the human rights situation in any country that is in question. And uh, this includes Russia itself, where there have been millions upon millions, tens of millions of dollars poured into opposition groups that exploit this concept of human rights, for example, LGBTQ rights, and use that issue as a a weapon of regime change. And not only does this create a really dangerous precedent for uh, this issue to just be weaponized for the purposes of war, But then it creates this situation where even if these are legitimate issues within a country like, let's say, Russia, people are not going to pay attention because it's going to be associated with regime change. And that's the the dilemma that I think uh, we face is that actually all attempts for the U.S. and the West – to impose their version of human rights, no matter how you slice it, whether it's the U.S. literally bombing countries on this basis of human rights like it did to Libya, or whether it's their soft power arm of imperialism like the National Endowment for Democracy saying that right these opposition groups are for LGBTQ rights or for quote-unquote democracy, and then literally bastardizing those concepts, sanitizing and whitewashing those concepts for the purposes of regime change. All of it leads to the same issue. It leads to a worsening of the human rights situation, and it usually leads to direct policy on the part of the United States, which is just murderous, right? So oftentimes, the United States will say that a country like Russia, like China, like Syria is violating human rights, and then it will levy sanctions on those countries, which are known to murder people and kill people, right? I did a segment on my YouTube program, The Left Lens, about this record of sanctions and the data that we have, right? So the Center for um, uh, Economic Policy, uh, they found that the Center for Economic Policy Research, they found that between 2017 and 2018, those two years in Venezuela, U.S. sanctions had killed uh, upwards of uh, I believe it was uh, 40,000 people, so tens of thousands of people. In the DPRK in 2018 alone, 
uh, uh, Korea piece now, they found that uh, thousands of people had been killed due to the lack of medical supplies. So premature deaths due to lack of medical supplies and technologies needed to treat preventable diseases that uh, at least several thousand people had died in 2018 alone, even though uh, they could have been prevented with access to the global market. So these sanctions are already known to be murderous, uh, but yet over and over and over again, the United States employs them to against countries in this new Cold War, now China and Russia, Russia to a much more severe degree, the sanctions uh, are against them. But China also has sanctions against certain sectors, uh, Huawei, and also these diplomatic sanctions, which are meant to try to achieve, even if the goal isn't generally met, to try to achieve uh, suffering and instability and chaos within these countries in order to strengthen the argument strengthen the policy and and strengthen the overall objective of the new cold war which is to not just contain these countries but to transform them into vassal states of the west and while this may seem like a pipe dream right because russia and china don't seem like they're going to be going in that direction anytime soon the objective is the same So that's just a brief summary of the role that human rights plays as a weapon in this new Cold War. Of course, this new Cold War, while many people see it as this kind of isolated Russia-China or even just China or Russia, right? Some people refer to the new Cold War on Russia, new Cold War on China. Uh, While people view it in that lens, I view it as much broader than that, with these two countries at the center of a larger global policy of imperialism and racism and Uh, militarism and domination that the U.S. is employing and spreading across the world in order to maintain its hegemony. And so that's the role that human rights plays. Whenever you hear it come out of the mouth of Antony Blinken or any other U.S. official or EU official or NATO official, when they say human rights, you should think war. You should think uh, danger for humanity. And uh, that's not irony, Uh, that's just the nature and the character of uh, propaganda. So I'm going to end my segment now so that we can have a good 20 or so minutes um, to to chat. So thanks for coming through today. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, So... Yeah, if anyone wants to call in, please do. I am here. Let's see. Uh, okay, I got to go back. Uh, so I, I see one caller in the queue, uh, Peter. I saw Ty in the queue. I don't know if you want to jump back in uh, before Peter because I saw you in there. I don't know if you left uh, accidentally or just wanted to wait till the end of the show. Um, but I could take your call as well. Sometimes there's a little bit of a lag, so apologies for that. But I'll take Peter. Uh, If you do have a comment, I do urge that maybe you keep it to a minute or two, just or two minutes tops, just so um, we can get to others, um, especially for today, because I will be leaving probably in the next 20 minutes or so, maybe uh, 15 to 20 minutes. Um, so I'm going to get to Peter. I will take your call. All right, Peter, you are on. Thank you. Good morning, uh, Danny. Uh, well, I saw someone commenting I'm a ch- uh, ch- Chinese spy. That's kind of hilarious. Uh, I will keep my uh, comment short. Uh, Danny, you are a mixed race, racial person, right? Your father is a white and your mother is a Vietnamese. Yes. And, uh, I want to uh, bring this up. I actually believe you said human rights is meaningless. I actually believe human rights is very meaningful. Uh, in the Vietnam War, it's called uh, you use your enemy's weapons to defeat your enemy. Uh, this is well illustrated in the Battle of uh, uh, Abak. And uh, so human rights, it's a very powerful weapon. Uh, uh, Malcolm X already said, you know, he wants to elevate the civil rights into a human rights matter. And uh, so uh, it should not be uh, uh, monopolized by the U.S. Uh, I apologize for my accent for that. Uh, 
And uh, I am from China, and uh, I know quite well about you know what the Marxist is and all that. So relating back to your background, if you Google this uh, called uh, a Malaysia without border on internet, there is uh, about four hundred people like yourself, Danny. They are children of an American GI and a Vietnamese mother. The United States government continuously deny their citizenship of the United States. That's a human rights violation. These people uh, came to this world with nothing, uh, you know, not because they did anything wrong. They just happened to be born by a U.S. father and a Vietnamese mother. And the United States is solely responsible bring a total war in Vietnam. But they do not hold themselves responsible to address the human rights issue of these 400 Americans, just like yourself. And uh, this, this is relevant because uh, many people complained about the immigration crisis in the southern border. I wonder how many of those illegals, they call it, are due to the fact that their country's uh, political system and the economic system is completely messed up by the regime change of the West, right? So it's all about human rights. You should use that human rights topic as a weapon to attack your enemy, whether it's uh, anyone. You know, uh, I don't defend China's practice on human rights in some areas, and uh, I can definitely attack a lot of human rights practice in America, and this is one of them. And uh, you have talked about uh, Ukraine. The Ukraine war, the first victim of the war is those uh, civilians. They are, they, are, they are migrating out of Ukraine in mass. Is U.S. responsible? Is U.S. responsible to receive those immigrants, regardless whether they are white people or black people or brown people? So I actually believe that you actually should pay attention to the human rights as an actual powerful weapon to attack your enemies. So that is my comment. I thank you very much. Uh, thanks, uh, Peter. I mean, yeah, I'm going to get to Jason in a second, but I'll just say first I had to, I don't know how he's still able, they are still able to comment in the chat. I did ban them. I don't know what's going on, but there's some troll in the chat right now. Um, spewing racist garbage so if i'm unsuccessful banning them i will be uh, having to take that up with the app because for some reason they're still able to publish and i've banned them many times but in this question of human rights yeah i mean a lot of this question of migration i mean it was true in the case of my family true in the case of uh, many people migrating from other countries uh, to the west is the fact that the united states is destroying their countries the west is destroying their countries facilitating this migration and uh you know it's my opinion that yeah as i said in the uh, the narrative that or or the monologue that yeah i do think that there is a different conception of human rights there are many different conceptions of human rights uh and yes we have to define and come up with our own uh, but as human rights as how it is portrayed and seen by and spread by the west that that is what has been rendered uh essentially meaningless uh there there just is no a genuine concept of human rights within the uh, imperialist orbit. No, there just isn't. So, Jason, I am going to put you on now. Uh, you are... Uh, I think I made you a speaker, but I'd rather make you next caller. Okay, you're in the queue. Uh, oops, okay, hold on. Okay, up. Uh, Okay, uh, Jason, could you call in one more time? Um, sorry about that. I'm still getting to know this. Yes, there we go. Okay, Jason, you are in the queue again. It's a little bit of a lag here. Can you hear me? 
Yes, I can, yes, Jason. Hi. Okay. Okay. Uh, so here, here I am again. I, I think I believe I called you like a month ago, something like that. And uh, well, talking about the thing happened in Shanghai, I have more than six to seven friends living in Shanghai. So they all told me, you know, because their background are quite different. It、uh, a friend told me he's from Hong Kong, but he's living there for a year already. Before that, he was in Ukraine for a year and a half, and he left there and came to Shanghai, who he used to live for a few years. And he told me that his situation is quite difficult. Not because it's he said it mainly because he's living alone, and he doesn't have a family, so he doesn't have a lot of things stocked up, and、uh, he 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 does receive food.、Um, In quite a regular basis from the government and things like that, but、uh, he said that um, um, the problem is mainly the the people or the part or the committee or the people who responsible for delivering the food, they are not that、um, they are not that clear of like、uh, in one apartment how many people living there. So he give them a lot of food that those kind of food already good for three for three to four people. He doesn't need that much, so apparently,、uh, for some uh, for some uh, people who have like three or four people in their family, they they may not have enough food, and also I think it varies a lot depends on what district and sub sub district of in、uh, which part of Shanghai you are in. It's not about that's not enough food in Shanghai. It's about the logistic, the delivery, because、um, of the. Last minute, I'm not saying last minute, because the strict、uh, dynamic zero、uh, policy just been really, really followed up by the Shanghai government in the last two, three weeks. Before that, they are kind of really lax, really relaxed. So, actually, I read that the first origin of the case coming into Shanghai, who caused this outbreak, was from like a month ago. Somewhere, okay, and uh, uh, I have six, seven friends in Shanghai, and they are okay. You know, they, 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 it, it's mainly about not about not enough food. It's about the mindset, the、um, psychological, mental, the problem that I really feel as well.、Um, but I also have friends in Shanghai every. Every day he's drinking beer, having some really good food. So either he got some、uh, really good、uh, the delivery service, because in China you you know you got a group buying, okay, 团购 and、uh, so if you have the way to buy food in uh, uh, in groups, you life may be easier for you. And all over China, I have more than ten to twenty friends, all spread out, all in different parts of China. A few of them, they just uh, 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 finished their not really lockdown, semi lockdown. Things are much better outside Shanghai. Maybe difficult uh, uh, also in Jilin, but of course Shanghai is a more serious one. And also, I also always wonder how can U.S. complain about or the U.S. or Western media complain about the 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 horrendous. Uh, uh, A draconian lockdown of Shanghai, no human rights. I mean, when you just had almost one million people die in your own country and in Europe and US together, total almost two million people. How can you say something like that? It's totally crazy. So、uh, I I think、uh, in 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 China in the last because I've been、uh, on and off going to China and actually I living in. The five major city in China: Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Chongqing. Each of them, from either from one year to five years, in the last twenty years, I've, and I've been more than going to more than fifty cities in China, and I've seen a lot, a lot of improvement in the last twenty years. So I don't see in any way. Of course, there will be, because. As you said, China is a huge country, 1.4 billion people. There will be a lot, a lot of. If people say there are a lot of corruption in China, yes, I can say yes, still yes, because there are still a lot of corruptions in China. 
But in the last 10 years, especially after Xi Jinping came to power, he really crammed up a lot of this corruption. And that's why reflected in the many surveys that uh, the Chinese people had really high confidence in the government. I mean, that really says all. Okay, it's a, no government in the world is perfect. Okay, I'm not when I I always tell my friends you cannot really complain about things are that bad uh, during dealing with COVID in US or West because it's sometimes I think it's not the government don't want to do it or don't want to save as many lives as possible. It's just because in the system, in the culture, it's very, very difficult to do it like the way China did. For me, it's, it's, it's not possible. I'm just saying that it's not like a, 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 a US one, many people die in US. I'm not saying that because it, it's also not fair. It's just the system are not built up in this way and the culture and the value of Americans and a lot of Western people, they are not the same as in Asia or in China. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I want to, that's more or less what I want to say for this time. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Jason. You. Thank you. I that was a great, um, I think that was a great sort of inside perspective. I'm actually going to be speaking with um, someone who lives in Shanghai tomorrow night on my YouTube channel, The Left Lens. You should check that out. Um, you know, he's been talking, it's Sean Rain. He's been talking about his experience in lockdown in Shanghai. And I think a lot of what you said definitely resonates. Yeah, it's just so interesting that the United States has this massive record of casualties to COVID-19. And yet it feels like it has the right to judge China, which has, despite all those hardships that, that Jason mentioned, right? And there are hardships and there are logistical issues. Uh, there is a lot of variation, as Jason mentioned, in how successful some of these uh, efforts are to get deliveries to people. The central government, though, has stepped in. And I think a lot of these things are easing over time now. Uh, uh, now that the central government has stepped in and there's also been a lot of solidarity among people in the community as well. And so uh, the situation isn't as grim, even though, unfortunately, the spread of, of COVID-19 still hasn't uh, been contained just yet. Uh, there's still a lot of positive cases coming in because of delay transmission. So... Uh, with that said, though, I had a couple of people uh, in the queue. I have um, uh, Rudy that I will bring in now. Okay. Um, you can speak, Rudy. Hey, what's up, Danny? How you doing? Hey, what's going on? I'm all right. How are you? Good. Um, I was. My question is. You know how the U.S. has done a bunch of war games, some 18, and in the last 18, the U.S. has lost to China in their virtual war games, right? Um, the U.S. can lie to its citizens and pretend that it is stronger than it is, but it can't fool China. It can't fool China because if I know this, the Chinese know this. So how are the Chinese, I guess, ruling? based on this information, you know, because they know, we know that the U.S. is trying to put the stranglehold on China. And, you know, China knows that as well, obviously. And then China also knows that even according to U.S. like estimates and stuff, it is weaker than China in a war, potentially. So I guess, how does it sort of take the U.S. seriously and... Yeah, how do you how do you govern based on information like that? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I think that uh, China's policy is pretty clear in dealing with the United States, and that uh, China tends to avoid any kind of. Um, 
any kind of confrontation with the United States uh, for many different reasons. The main one is that it's likely to be unproductive because the United States uh, really fuels and thrives off of uh, its confrontation with other countries. And so uh, China takes a real uh, sort of diplomatic approach, says that it's interested in maintaining cooperation uh, no matter what the United States does, it says, you know, its relationship with the United States is very valuable, but China does also, uh, you know, draw a lot of lines about what is acceptable and tolerable in terms of the U.S.'s position towards it. So on questions like Taiwan and Hong Kong and Xinjiang and uh, even on issues of human rights and uh, development, etc., cetera, uh, sanctions on other countries, right? China is very vocal uh, against those things against the way that the United States approaches those things. So, you know, the United States is going to do what the United States does. And, and, and I think China uh, understands the overall global situation is pretty complicated because uh, there is this uh, growing interconnection among people and nations, while at the same time the United States has this policy of endless war and the West has this a policy of domination that kind of goes against the overall trend of development. And so it really is about uh, navigating these issues in a way that protects the integrity of China's sovereignty as well as uh, pr- promotes a vision that, you know, adheres to uh, the values uh, of its government. And so none of this can be done perfectly in such a world. But there is, I think, an overall divergence happening. And I think uh, the way that China approaches this divergence is, is one that is, that is very diplomatic and, and very interested in cooperation and also balances that with the right to defend itself from from aggression and the right to defend others from aggression as well in a way that maintains global stability. I mean, even just talking about it, all I can think about in my head is this kind of tightrope, right? Walking along a tightrope, trying to strike a balance between forces that uh, really uh, don't go together, right? Uh, The quest for U.S. hegemony and Western imperial domination does not necessarily go together, go with or align with China's overall approach to economic development, political development, this concept of human rights, etc. They are very divergent. They're very contradictory, if not antagonistic. But of course, uh, any rational force in the world, which isn't just China, but other countries as well, other uh, political movements and leaders as well, understand uh, that uh, the United States is what it is, and without political change happening there and, and in the Western world, uh, what is possible in terms of asserting a different political model will be limited until the, there is, I think, a, a different um, a political situation globally. So... I am going to, I think, uh, close up the room. I apologize to those who are in the queue. Uh, I know, Peter, you wanted to say something. Um, If you guys have uh, comments, just quick comments, I can take them. But but I won't be able uh, to answer any any questions right now. Uh, So I'll I'll put you back on Peter and then uh, Rudy. So I'm going to make you the next uh, caller, Peter, if you have a, a short comment up to a minute. Sure. One comment just for this uh, listener, uh, M-A-T-E-O-D. Uh, basically, right. someone is doing a way better job than, than this Matteo. Her name is uh, uh, Amy Wax. She is a University of Pennsylvania law professor. She has a medical doctor degree. She she is a uh, specialized in neuroscientist. She has recently said the United States should ban all Asians coming into this 
country. She does not understand all the resentment and rage by the black people towards the Western people, quote unquote. It's her word. She said everything that totally covered what this uh, Mateo is saying. So, so as a matter of fact, I have a show tonight that's going to debunk what this law professor is saying. It's probably the most, you know, uh, she's probably the most racist person in a, with the highest IQ because IQ is important for this guy, M-A-T-E-O-D. So I'm going to debunk in my show at nine o'clock t- tonight to, uh, why this kind of rages, why people like this Mateo exist in this chat room and anywhere else. Thank you, uh, uh, Danny, for, for allowing me to, to speak here. Yeah, yeah. And please, uh, if you're listening to this now, uh, check that out tomorrow or tonight. Check that out tonight, 9 p.m. Uh, go to Peter's profile, subscribe to his show. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, Peter mentioned someone in the chat. I've tried to ban this person so many times. I don't know how they're continuing to be able to participate, but that's something I'll have to take up. With the app, because on the one hand, I am completely open and they never requested to speak in this podcast today. I'd be completely open if they had real questions or comments, uh, but they never made themselves available for that. They didn't uh, put themselves in the queue for a call. Instead, they're just spewing racist vitriol in the chat. And so I've tried to ban them many, many times. Uh, but that's something I'll take up with the Colin app after this program, and hopefully we'll get that figured out. And I'll make sure that they're aware that one of their users that they are paying is uh, spreading this kind of racist hatred because uh, I'm hoping that they wouldn't want to be reflected in this manner. I think it is pretty pathetic, and I think it just shows uh, how deeply uh, those forces who have bought in to this uh, new Cold War are uh, just so obsessed with racism, so obsessed with uh, their own, um, so obsessed with their own arrogance and hubris uh, that they uh, just have no capacity to participate in a legitimate discussion about politics. But nonetheless, I don't see anybody else. In the caller queue, unless I am mistaken, sometimes I am. No, I don't see anyone else calling in. So with that said, I'm going to end this episode today. Uh, Thank you all for coming. Uh, Before you go, make sure if you are not already to subscribe to this show here in the Colin app. Uh, Make sure also to find me in other places. You can find me on Twitter at Spirit of HO, Spirit of Ho. You can find me on YouTube at The Left Lens. So just uh, YouTube search The Left Lens and subscribe to that channel. I'll be talking to someone tomorrow night who lives in Shanghai to get a little bit of an inside perspective as Jason gave us a little bit today. And uh, you can also, of course, the link provided on my profile is my Patreon. That's how you can support my work financially. Um in order to continue my independent journalism and make sure that it is uh, sustainable. And I really appreciate if you're able. So uh, that's all I have for today. Uh, I will hopefully see you all again for the next episode. Uh, Bye-bye.